Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastak. Once upon a time, the most groundbreaking ideas in modern physics, like that the Earth is round or special relativity, the uncertainty principle, were seen as shocking, impossible, even deviant. Recall Galileo's trial, for example. But even today, wild ideas can be laughed out of a conference, especially if they come from someone perceived as an outsider. Brown University physics professor Stefan Alexander, one such self-identified outsider, joins the podcast to talk about his new book, Fear of a Black Universe, and his own experiences as a black man in science who has made major contributions, quote, not in spite of his outsider experience, but because of it. Thanks so much for talking to me, Stefan. My pleasure. I'd love for you to start by talking about what it means for you to be an outsider in physics. In some ways, what that could mean is obvious. You're a black man in academia. Uh, But in other ways, it's not obvious since you are a tenured professor of physics (laughs) at an Ivy League. Yeah. So in some in some um, in some domains, I guess I am an insider very much. So tenured professor. But in other respects, um, I I'm an outsider, I remain an outsider in the sense that, you know, I'm an African-American um, in a field that traditionally and historically has not um, had many of us and in some respects, you know, has not been as welcoming to people like myself. But I'm also an outsider, I think, also in my personality, maybe. I, I, I don't think I fit the you know the way these movies movies and like the media portray scientists as i don't know socially awkward or maybe i am socially awkward in some respects but the, you know the usual stereotypes um i i've never really i didn't fit any of those stereotypes and i'm i'm talking in non-racial categories I'm just talking about like you know i'm i'm also an you know i'm very autistic i'm very spec sometimes speculative um, irrational in my thinking sometimes, um, you know, there's a side of me that, that does, um, engage in woo-woo and spiritual matters and things like that. I think one thing I found super gratifying about your book was how often you admitted feeling like an outsider, not just because of your race or the way you think, but also because like the far reaches of physics can be very difficult to understand. And as someone who like, didn't make it past Physics 101, I was really gratified by your story of being a postdoctoral researcher at the Imperial College of London and feeling like Mm -hmm. a fake because you had, you know, could barely figure out sort of what equations to learn to understand the latest thing that had come out. Can you talk about what happened there? Because I love that, how it was like, ironically, you know, what you experienced led you to figure out what it means for you to be a physicist. Yeah. So, you know, um, after your PhD, you go do this thing called a postdoc where you learn or you experience what it's like and how to be an independent researcher, how to come up with your own problems and follow them way through. And also, hopefully, that it makes impact in the field um, and you have something new to say. And, um, you know, I think everyone and it's, I think everyone internalizes and feels only them. So I certainly I was I felt that way that I didn't have. I wasn't as smart or as capable or as well-trained as the other postdocs. Um, and naturally, I was comparing myself um, along the axis of technique and who know, you know, knowing math and knowing how to 
find the right problems to solve and that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, my, at that time, I just tried to fake it, meaning, you know, I would wear my black outfit every day, get my, my latte and go into my office, close the door and sometimes fall asleep on the, on the desk. <laughs> um, and I'll say to myself, you know, at the very least, if I, if I accomplish nothing, um, I'll, I still get paid. I get to live in London and, um, maybe I'll just, you know, continue collecting the, the checks as the saying goes, um, until they figure it out. Um, that, appeared to happen much sooner than I expected because then the, 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 the head of the group who was this towering mathematical physicist known to, you know, have superhuman powers to calculate hundreds of pages of super symmetry calculations and topos theory, C star algebra and all this crazy stuff. And the head of the group wanted to meet me. And I knew that he was going to call me out. And I, I just assumed that he was just going to now grill me and then figure out like I knew nothing. Um, went into the office and then he said to me, "So why are you here?" And I said, um, "Well, I you know I really want to be a good physicist." He goes, "Then throw away those physics books. Um, you know the the secret to being a great physicist is is to train your intuition um, and your and and the source of that is your unconscious." He was trained in Jungian psychoanalysis as well for fifteen years and that. Maybe I'd be interested in doing dream analysis with him. So instead of me going in and talking physics with him, I'd come in every week and literally sit on like this long chair and close my eyes and tell him the, the recent dreams that I had, and he would then analyze it. And that became... Now, that was, I mean, prefaced by the fact that one of the architects of quantum mechanics, who was very much an insider and very much known in the insider club to scrutinize and be very technical and catch people on errors and things like that. Wolfgang Pauli. Pauli was also engaging in dream analysis with Carl Jung and kept it a secret. So that that was a preface of me why I would do this and why this should work. And it wasn't working for a while. And then maybe maybe like a year later, one of those dreams that turned out to be the, I don't know, insight into a problem that later on became a, a paper that's cited about 200 times now. So in other words, I guess the lesson I learned from those experiences is that, you know, we always have to engage in the, the craft of sharpening our, our toolkit and, you know, this doesn't get you off from learning the techniques, and but that's always going to be a learning process. But at the same time, you know, the sources of inspiration and creativity, one has to find those things and they're deeply personal and one size doesn't fit all. And that's kind of what one of the things that I learned from that. Um, but to you know, later on learn that some of the uh, the founders of modern physics, Schrodinger, Max Planck, Pauli, um, Heisenberg, you know, Einstein, um, Niels Bohr, they all were inspired by other other ways of thinking, other philosophy, Taoist philosophy, Buddhist philosophy, Vedic philosophy, you know, and that wasn't taught in my formal education. It would have been useful to have known that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of ironic, too, because physics especially, but really any kind of science has figures like Einstein, for instance, who, you know, is a prime example of coming up with ideas that violate scientific norms and expectations, totally like blows the classical understanding of the world out of the mm -hmm. water. And yet you talk about how 
ideas like that today are not exactly accepted. Do you feel like things have changed or like why is there this resistance to ideas that violate those things that are so new? It's a really good question. I mean, I think that it's sort of like, let's put this in a musical context, maybe like, you know, hip hop music, let's say, when, when it wasn't accepted in the Bronx. I grew up in the Bronx, you know, when my dad used to bring home these cassette tapes from Grandmaster Flash when he was a cab driver and driving these young guys around. My mother would say, what kind of noise is this? I mean, it was like noise. It wasn't even considered to be music. And then all of a sudden, this thing that was not accepted, now there are schools and universities of hip-hop, and it's in like, you know, I don't know, Stanford's music, you know, some program. It's in a museum of MoMA, whatever these. Now it's established. And I can imagine now that this the generation that inherits this thing now is one of the norms or accepted types of music. I could see how it's easy to forget those roots and now be dismissive, maybe, of, I don't know, new ways of um, thinking about hip-hop, let's say. So, assuming we're still waiting for quantum physics's Einstein to come around, um, what are the questions at the edge of what we know right now of physics? Well, you know, we have a good sense of what the fundamental forces are, and we have a way of thinking about them mathematically. There are some organizational principles that are driven by symmetry principles and things like this. But it seems that there's a hint that they should be unified, and every attempt so far to do that has opened up new problems. When I say that, I'm thinking about approaches like string theory or loop quantum gravity, and it seems to me that like a new principle might be missing, and I kind of talk about that in the book. So that's one sort of um, thing that I think most people will agree on in the field. Um, some of the things I tackle is like basically, how does physics really relate? How does that type of physics, fundamental physics, relate now to the emergence of life? Or how does the hard question of consciousness relate to our laws, our physical laws? Um, and how does all of that connect to the happenings of um, our universe or the standard cosmology that we understand? And like the questions that we've asked in cosmology, like how did the structure form? How did galaxies and stars emerge from a featureless early universe, knowing that the universe has been expanding? Um, okay, if the universe is expanding, aside from creating structure, is there another function that it plays? And like, um, you know, I explore some of that and I speculate on some of that. Mm-hmm. I mean, those all sound like really interesting questions to me, you know, another outsider to the world of physics in many ways. But like you talk mm -hmm. about holding yourself back from answering those questions or even asking them for a long time. Why do you think that is? I mean, this goes back to the whole outsider thing. And let me actually clarify something about the outsider thing. One thing I do try to get across in the book is uh, actually that there's actually a beauty to being an outsider. So by no means am I complaining about, oh, woe is me, I'm an outsider. It's actually a celebration. It's a, and I use um, the examples of, of where that's celebrated, like in post-graffiti and in graffiti art, where artists, no matter how, how um, established they become, they also keep a foot on the outside because they see the value in it. Mm -hmm. So I never really want to be an outsider, you see. Um, and that's um, something that 
I got, I walked out of after writing, you know, through writing this book, was actually there was there's a real advantage for that. Now connected to the career of being a scientist, I mean, there's a particular trajectory that you know you're told is the right trajectory to take to to be able to get a job and keep a job and maybe you know if you're staying in academic physics, um, you need to publish or perish. There's a kind of idea that there's a shepherd and there's a herd that follows the shepherd. So there are certain leaders and they may define the questions or the methodologies um, to address these questions. And so if people are, if, if the idea of thinking about the relationship, the origin of life, some people say, well, that's not your field. So step, you, you know, stay in your lane. Um, you're a physicist. You shouldn't be asking those questions. Or, well, what's, you know, the relationship between consciousness and quantum mechanics? That's a bit woo-woo. You know I mean, like there's no, you know, there's no room to ask those questions in physics. You know, because clearly there's no answer to that because it's a senseless question to ask. So there are lots of pressures and penalties. I talk about deviance, you know, um, that the punishment if you deviate from the inside. If you're on the inside, and part of being on the inside means that there's some well-defined rules, rules and norms of engagement. Well, if you deviate away from that, then you are a deviant and you will be subject to punishment via being shunned not invited to the reindeer games or like the workshops and the seminars and, you know, job interviews and all these good things that happen or even getting a grant. Mm -hmm. Penalty could be that there's some secret committee that knows your name and you don't know their name. And they, they oh, this guy's into woohoo. We're not going to fund him. And then if you're not funded, you can't continue doing your research and you suffer. Um, so there are real penalties there. Um, this is why I wrote this book after I became a full professor. <laughs> <laughs> That's that's a good reason. I mean, it's I guess it's one of the blessings of reading it from outside that world. I really like this one line you cite. I can't remember if it's yours or if you're quoting someone where you say, um, you know, theorizing never killed anyone because it's like yes. really true. It is true. But, you know, it's funny because like until I heard that, actually heard somebody articulate that in, 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 a, in, a, in a seminar that I was given and I was being attacked left and right and embarrassed and, you know, stigmatized and all that. All the stuff that comes out when you say something that's, that might be absurd. Um, and you know, physicists, we value, I mean, we do value, it, it does hurt, hurt if, you know, your colleagues think you're dumb <laughs> or incompetent or these kind of things. And, you know, that, and that becomes your reputation. But the fact that this prominent physicist sitting in the room stood up and said, let him finish his talk. No one has ever died from theorizing. It's so important because the function of theory, at least in theoretical physics, it's a, like, you know, lay, lay the ideas out there and then, and then scrutinize it. And then if, if it's wrong, it's wrong. We move on. But, you know, we need to kind of like look at the landscape of ideas, no matter how absurd they are, because we trust in our techniques and in our methodologies to then scrutinize it properly. But I think, you know, we, we need more imagination, not less. I think my struggle with a lot of physics questions sometimes is that, you know, you read about something and then, you know, like, I'm not really sure what the connection is to the present day. I appreciate that right off the bat, you know, you you say something like, you know, the universe is expanding. Like, why should we care? Um, so, I mean, to take that as one example, I mean, what about the questions that you're asking do you think we should care about? Yeah, I mean, I think one question um, that I care about you know, there's something I've, I think I've always cared about. Um, 
And it also it led me to physics, you know, which was the question of life and death itself. I mean, I remember growing up in the Bronx, really seeing and experiencing people my age, like, you're not living, <laughs> you know, like, um, or just having very harsh realities, you know. Um, my mother was a, a, a nurse in the Bronx. Um, and, you know, like, just hearing her stories, she used to come and tell us, like, she never really hide things from us in that sense. And, you know, just the fact that, you know, just my own mortality, and I think that I was seeking answers to that. Like, you know, where did I come from, you know, before I, where was I before I was born, and where do I go after, after I leave my body? If, where is this I? And I, and I know that sometimes sounds like something that has to deal with more perennial matters and spiritual matters, but for me, I was driven to physics, and like, I think the magic of quantum mechanics, this idea that, like, you know, you have the measurement problem, these deep philosophical questions, overlapped. Yeah, I think that's why I really liked the parts of your book where you talk about um, you and your friend Salvador Almagro Moreno, mm -hmm. who is a biologist, and how you share, um, and I'm going to quote here, a vision I think many of our fellow biologists and physicists would find too deviant and even repugnant. So, I mean, what is your disgusting idea about biology and physics? Uh, I would discuss an idea between biology and physics. I mean, there are a couple of them. Um, but one is that basically this idea that life, you know, that, that there's a tendency for, you know, physical systems, including, um, you know, living anything made up of matter, to basically create entropy. At entropy, which is a measure in a sense of, of disorder. You can think of it as a measure of disorder. So if I have something that has a well-defined structure or something that's completely random and structureless, the random and structureless thing will actually have more entropy than something that has structure. So, so that's one way of thinking about it. There's a sense of randomness, you know, with, with a system that has high entropy compared to a system that has low entropy. So for a living system to maintain its life, maintain itself, it has to basically take energy in and create entropy. So in a sense, it's negating entropy by doing that to um, the living system itself because it has to maintain its structure, you know? I mean, it has to remain alive. Living things figured out a way to fight against entropy. That's one way of saying it. And we see that the universe as a whole is playing a similar game. That was a disgusting idea, meaning like finding parallels between life and the universe itself. Looking at um, analogs between living things and the happenings in, in my field, cosmology, was kind of the exercise we were undertaking you know, and the function of that, of, of course, is um, playing with ideas, I just for the sake of it. And in the end, it was really fruitful, though, right? Like, it ended up with your colleague applying entropy and cosmological ideas to, to biology, right? I mean, yeah. that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, we used to have, like, you know, an evening beer and discuss, like, he would ask me, what are you thinking about? And I was like, well, I'm thinking about cyclic cosmologies and how the coupling constants of nature change from cycle to cycle. What I mean by that is that instead of having an expanded universe, um, uh, you know, think about the universe as just a, a, a big bang into an expanded universe, the idea of a cyclic universe is that it expands and contracts and, and re-expands again and cycles uh, from expansion to contraction for eons. And um, we happen to live in one cycle of expansion and contraction. And Salvador basically was working on a problem having to do with... Um, uh, bacteria, its gene, you know, its genome, basically, how the genes might might change to change certain features 
of the bacteria. And he literally used that idea um, in terms of um, a particular genetic experiment and theory. And that it worked out, actually. And it, it was published in one of the top journals in microbiology. Did he return the favor? What did you steal from biology? So far, nothing, nothing really yet. I mean, the only thing that I kind of got was that basically there is an interesting coincidence between the expansion rate of the universe and actually when life first formed. Like, so there's a time scale about when life formed, um, how long biological life, as we know, it has been around, and actually the expansion rate of the universe. They're connected. They're connected. And so that might be a numerical coincidence, but you never know. I'm still thinking about it. Well, he still owes you a beer, I guess. <laughs> yes, he does. Yes, he does. We have links in the show notes to Stefan Alexander's new book, Fear of a Black Universe, as well as a number of physics essays that we've published over the years from outsiders and insiders alike. One thing Stefan did not mention in this interview is that he is an accomplished jazz musician. And what I played for you at the top of the show and right now is actually one of his tracks with the artist Rue, fittingly called Running from the Cosmos. Check out the full album in the show notes. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Stay sharp.